0: good morning. This morning, we want to continue talking out of the book of Acts. And I want to talk about lessons that we can learn that we see in the book, uh, chapters one through six in the book of Acts. This is not a complete list. This is just a simple list of some of the lessons that we can glean from this particular text. So let me just start out by going back to some basic things about the book. First of all, this is a transition book in other words we're transitioning from the old covenant to the new covenant and so this is uh, this book is intended to help us make that transition and as you recall the old covenant was the covenant of the law it was a covenant of works it was a conditional covenant that required human obedience and the new covenant is different it's a covenant of grace it's a covenant that does not require us to be obedient to be part of the covenant but it empowers us as part of the covenant to be able to grow in our ability to be obedient what's missing in the old covenant was divine empowerment so man left to himself without divine empowerment would never be able to obey god well and consistently but in the new covenant we have now the holy spirit within us sovereignly it's not Our admission to that covenant is not conditioned on our obedience, but once you have been brought into that covenant, you will be divinely empowered to obey, and so you'll grow in that capacity. So that's a distinction we need to be clear on. The book of Acts, the theme of the book, is the kingdom of God. And we're going to see that in just a minute. I'm going to take you to the beginning of the book and the end of the book, and you're going to see... The kingdom of God is indeed what is covered in the book. Everything we have in the book of Acts is in some way connected to the concept of the kingdom of God. The book was written over or covers about 30 years of history from about 33 to 63 A.D. The key idea in the book is not just the kingdom, but Jesus as the king. And that doesn't refer to him specifically as king using that word. It uses the words, Jesus is Lord and Christ. And as we go through the book, we need to know this is a transition. So there are things that happen in the book that are unique. For example, there's the first day of the kingdom. There's the first day of the ecclesia. There's the first sermon, a first message. There are the first converts Uh, So, and there are these early practices, there are a lot of firsts that go on in the book. And we have to be clear as to which of these firsts are normative and which were singular, meaning they only occurred once. Clearly, the first message can only be the first message, but the first practices, on the other hand, could be norms. So we have to make the distinction by looking at the context, paying attention to other scripture to try to discern what is normative and what is not normative. And we have also one of the the keys of this book in this transition was the increasing revelation about the kingdom of God and the message of the kingdom and how it was inclusive. This is inclusive of all ethnicities. And also we have to understand how does this this new message, new kingdom, this new covenant relate to the old? And do you have to in some way be part of the old and the new? So all of that is unveiled throughout the book of Acts. So let's just focus for a second on the context of the kingdom. The context of the kingdom is the context of life. We live in the kingdom of God. It's his universe. And the only thing that works well long-term in his universe are his rules. So Jesus starts out in Acts chapter 1. He is resurrected. He's not ascended yet. He spends 40 days between his resurrection and ascension. Ten days later would be Pentecost, and that's when the Holy Spirit would come. That would initiate the age of the new covenant, and we have now the new covenant church at that point, or new covenant ecclesia. But prior to that that day in Acts 2, We have Acts 1, and I just want to read to you a few texts here and make a few comments. Uh, Luke is writing, he said, in the first book, that is the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus. Uh, And Theophilus is an unknown person. We don't know who this person is. We have no information on him that I'm aware of. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now you stop and think about that. Jesus got 40 days with his disciples before he transitions to the presence of the Father, the physical presence, which that's an interesting idea. How do you physically be in the presence of a spiritual being called God? But that's for another time. Uh, But he could have talked about lots of things. He could have talked about social issues. He could have talked about salvation. He could have talked about the atonement. He could have talked about uh, ethics and values. And he could talk about eschatology, all these kinds of things. He could have talked about. He talked about none of those. He talked about the kingdom. Or if he talked about them, he talked to them about them relative to the kingdom of God. What is that he's talking about? Then you see in Acts 28, the last verse of the book, verse 31, Paul is in Rome. After he's had three apostolic journeys, he's been on the Lord about 30 years by this time. And he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. And teaching about the Lord Jesus. Now, I want you to just notice how the word is worded. We typically proclaim Jesus. We don't proclaim the kingdom. And so we, you know, you it, it should challenge you to think about. Well, what, wait a minute. How well do we really understand what Scripture is saying here? Proclaiming the kingdom of God. I remember the first time I. I asked one of my spiritual fathers about the kingdom of God. This was probably back in the early 70s. This is 50 years ago. And I, I, I had been reading through scripture, and I knew it, it, it said a lot about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It said these things like the kingdom is now, the kingdom's at hand, and yet there's a kingdom coming. It had all of these different nuances of this kingdom. And I began. I asked this one seminary professor who was a spiritual father to me, I said, what, what's this whole thing about the kingdom of God? And the only thing he could point to was a millennial kingdom, which is a very dispensational way to think about it. And it was years later that when I met Dennis, that I had a chance to really hear a different view, uh, a view that that is largely, it's become more popular in recent times, which is, George Eldon Ladd uh, first articulated this about 70 years ago in a book, um, and it's the whole now and not yet aspect of the kingdom, which seems to really fit what Scripture says. But Jesus is Lord of the kingdom. Jesus created the kingdom. He is Lord of the kingdom, even though the the, the kingdom is in rebellion against him. He's still Lord, and he will be Lord ultimately when the the restoration of the uncontested rule of Christ is finally done. So the ultimate end will be the uncontested rule of Christ. You see, in, when creation was done, accomplished early on, Christ's rule was not contested. It was not contested until the fall. And then we are, we went into rebellion against him. But that rebellion will be put aside, will be judged, and the uncontested rule of Christ will be restored. So that's what Acts 2, 34 through 35 is telling us, which are the two verses right before the key verse of the first message of Christianity. So let me read verses 34 and 35, then we're going to read verse 36. And Peter's explaining the events of Pentecost to this very first audience, and on the first day, on the first message, he's saying about, about Jesus that David did not descend into heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, and of course, this is one of, This is the, the father speaking to the son. That's what, the way to understand this. Sit at my right hand and tell him, make your enemies your footstool. So that's the verse, the verse is right before the conclusion of his message. Then he says in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is the father has made the son, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So this is the RK of the kingdom. The RK is a starting point. Jesus is also the ark of creation. He's are your starting point for everything but specifically he is the RK of the kingdom because he's the king of the kingdom. Now, how did this first audience on the first day, listening to the first message about the new covenant, how did they respond to the RK of the kingdom of God? How did they respond to Jesus is Lord in Christ? Now, keep in mind, this is a highly biblically literate crowd. This is a group of people that, that were very well versed in the Old Testament and very committed to scripture. Most of these people probably were from out of town. They were part of the Jewish dispersion. You remember the dispersion was the judgment of God upon the people of God for failing in the old covenant. The old covenant was a conditional covenant that required their obedience, but they didn't obey. And God told them, if you don't obey me, not only will you not be my people, but you'll be scattered. And so many of these people that have come for this day of Pentecost in 33 AD were part of the dispersion. And that dispersion happened hundreds of years prior to this date. So these people are listening to this with a mindset of people who are highly biblically literate. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, verse 37, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? You know, that's what you're going to do. If you're part of the old covenant, your first thought is doing something. So what shall we do? And you see Peter doesn't really give them something to do. He gives them something to be. Okay. And the way he does that, he says, first you repent. And then you be baptized. Now, repentance is something that happens inside of you. And so. That's not something you really do, it's it's a transformation that happens inside of you. You have to take responsibility to respond to truth, internally, in your mind, okay? So the verb here is in the heiress tense referring to, heiress tense always means time is not the issue here. Heiress tense, there's no reference to time in the heiress tense, it's reference to a fact, something that's happening. The active voice means the subject of the verb is doing the action. The subject is the implied subject, you. You repent. So that's something you do. Imperative mood means it's a command. Here's the command. Repent. Change your thinking. You're thinking about Jesus is wrong. He is Lord in Christ. You don't realize that. You need to embrace that. That's, That's the starting to to living differently, is thinking differently about Jesus. And then he says, be baptized. Now, the be baptized is not in the active voice. It's in the passive voice. In the passive voice, the action of the verb is done to the subject. So the subject is you, so the being baptized is done to you. So you be baptized, meaning someone else will baptize you, so you surrender to that. That's all you can do is surrender to that. And again, it's the imperative, you have a command. You gotta change your thinking and submit to being baptized. And being baptized is identifying with a message, a worldview, a theology, a system of thinking that will now shape your life. Be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, and then the benefits, you'll have forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, see, in all of this, you haven't really done any action. You know, it's the action, like the baptism, is done to you, and forgiveness is, is given to you. The gift of the Holy Spirit is given to you. The ability to repent is given to you. So, you see, this is all happening internally in your being. And the one thing that you do is done to you. What a beautiful picture of how God works. This is what it means to come into the new covenant in the new new the new ecclesia of the New Testament. And then he goes on to say for the promise is for you, if your children and for all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord our God calls. The promise is probably a re- reference to the Abrahamic promise. And the Lord calling here it's it's interesting The mood of this verb is subjunctive. Now, in the Greek language, the indicative mood means something's a fact. The imperative mood means something is a command. The subjunctive mood means that something might happen. See, so what he's saying here, on some level, we don't know who God's called. The only way we can know if someone is called is when we see transformation in their lives. We see them expressing faith in in Christ, beginning to live according to a Christian worldview. That is the way that we recognize it. So at this point, he's acknowledging that God is the caller, and that's really important that we keep clear on that because we get confused. We think we can self-call. No, God calls. Going on, it says... And with many words, he bore witness and continue to exhort them, saying, save yourselves. Now, again, let's be clear on what he's saying here. And save yourself is in the passive voice, meaning you cannot self-save. You cannot do anything to save yourself. So you surrender, you submit to the work of the spirit in, in salvation, the salvation process. He regenerates you you don't do anything other than respond to his in, in presence within him and you that's irresistible you can't resist him so he's telling them this is important you pay attention there's a new sheriff in town it's called Jesus and he's got a new system a new process a new way and he's calling us to that and so that day that those who received the word and remember they didn't choose What the apostles are looking at is who is transformed here today. Those are the ones that are going to baptize, and about 3,000 souls were added to the Ecclesia. That's the first day. Now we're going to want to talk about uh, some of the things that sometimes are viewed as normative. Uh, I've heard many, many teachers over the years talk about the importance of mass conversions as if this is uh, something that should be normative. So we have to ask ourselves, is this really intended to be normative? So verse 41 mentioned now 3,000 souls were, were added and they were baptized that first day. That was a massive baptism. I don't know how long that went on, how many people that took and where they found the water. I guess they went to the river Jordan and they may have had a baptism all afternoon. Who knows what that took? The question is that to be considered normative? Well, I think it's tempting to want that, but we have to keep in mind what Jesus has told us. He's told us that it's going to be the remnant that he's going to regenerate. You see, we don't like that. We like to think everybody has a chance. Everybody's got equal opportunity. Everybody can make their own choice. That's not the way God works. That's the way we want him to work. But you read scripture, you see over and over again, it's not the way it works. So look at the context. The people that were there that day, it says they were very devout men. Can you imagine a community where you have very biblically literate, committed, devout people? Now, if you have that kind of audience, you might see a lot of people responding to the revelation of Jesus being Lord in Christ, particularly if there's some kind of supernatural act as there was on that first day, so if you have that combination, maybe you'll have some some mass conversions, but if you don't have that um i don't I don't think you have a good basis for saying this is normative. that's my view. The next one is our signs and wonders normative uh, acts two forty three uh talks about how. The early believers were living, and it says and with awe, the word awe is the word for fear. uh, and fear is not in sense of fright, but in sense of deep understanding and profound regard for God as God, and which means the humanism in us is dying. And with awe they came, of this awe or fear came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. Now, what's the point of signs and wonders? Well, we already know from verse 22 of chapter 2 how signs and wonders were used in the life of Jesus. They were used to attest to who, who he was and to the message that he carried. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. Now, today we are very prone to thinking that God will serve our pleasure and we can demand that he do things, do signs and wonders upon our request or maybe our demand. I don't think that's the way he works. I think he does signs and wonders. I totally believe he does at his sovereign pleasure to accomplish his purpose. That seems to be what you see here. So are they normative? They're normative in the sense that God sovereignly does them. I don't think they're normative in the sense that they are up to us to do these things as we please, or do these things whenever we want them to be done. I don't think it's good to stand in front of people and start making claims about we can call upon God to do something and he's gonna do what we want done. Probably not normative at all. So that's a place where we need some clarity and we need to clean up our thinking. A couple more practices that, that I think we should look at is communal living. Uh, Carol and I, were, you know, I've had an opportunity to be in a, a communal setting here recently. We got a chance to look at people that believed that communal living, based on the first few chapters of Acts, was the proper way to live. So Acts 2, through 45 says this. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need well um that's certainly what that was going on in that early community, which again was a lot of people who were from out of town and not able to support themselves and they we I don't know what they were thinking about how long they would be there. But the community that was there that could provide resources did that. And so they did it selflessly. They asked for nothing. They were just trying to help the brothers and sisters to be able to live and stay where they were to be part of the community. So that seems to be a very noble kind of thing. But keep in mind that this does not say that there's no private property. In fact, Acts 5 says the opposite. It says there is private property in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. And, and when they're confronted with their lie, and Peter says, look, uh, while you had the asset, before you sold it, uh, it was yours. You owned it. And after it so, sold, the proceeds were yours at your disposal. That was your private property. He's acknowledging private property. And when you take private property and you choose to give it to the community, be honest about it don't come and misrepresent your gift that was such a toxic sin at that point that they were struck down dead that's a that's a serious situation it makes you wonder is that happening today and maybe we're just not aware of what the Holy Spirit's really doing so communal living uh, as understood by to be a a vow of poverty and as, as having no private property is probably not normative. I think property, private property is the norm instead. And who does the calling? Is it man or God? Well, this is a big one because we humans want the right to make our own choices. We want to do what we want to do. We like being humanist. We don't like being the servant of Christ. Um, Last semester, I had a, a lady in my class, one of my classes, who was a PK. She was an older lady in the sense that she was older student. She was in her late 20s. Most of the students are early 20s. Uh, and I remember at one point, I, you know, it became, I became aware she was a PK. And I, I remember asking her what she was doing to support herself. And she told me she was a bartender. So I was kind of surprised at that. And then later on in the course, when I was talking about what a real Christian was and how all that you happens when you come to Christ is you change masters. You know, there's a big thing today about, well, I'm getting Christ set me free. Uh, and we think we think of that as humanists. Christ sent me free so I can do whatever I want to do. That is not Christianity. Christ did not set you free to be a humanist. You are a humanist. You're in bondage as a humanist. He set you free from humanism so you could be a servant of Christ. You changed masters. You went from being a slave of the spirit of Antichrist to become a slave of Christ. This lady got viscerally upset in class. She was nearly coming out of her chair. She's a very strong gal, and I was wondering if we were going to have a confrontation right there in class. But she held herself. And later she told me, she said, that really bothered me, but I had to recognize it was true. And so that was a good thing. She did humble herself to it. But a lot of times we don't recognize that God is God and we are simply his servants and we don't get to choose things and we don't have control and we're not set free from sin to be able to do whatever we want to do. God calls us to himself and then he sends us on assignment. To serve him so who does the calling is a god or man well if you read acts 2 it says quoting joel 2 everyone who calls upon the name of the lord shall be saved yes that's what it says it doesn't tell you if you have the capacity to call on the name of the lord so people may at times assume if god gives you a command to do something you have the ability to do it not necessarily true In the case of being in bondage to sin, you cannot get yourself out of bondage to sin. You have to be set free by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration sets you free. You can't see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, unless you're born again. And you cannot regenerate yourself. You can't cause the spirit to regenerate you. You can't buy that. You can't manipulate your way to it. You can't cajole your way into it. You have to be the object of divine calling. And so that's really why he says later in the chapter, I think he clarifies this, that it's the Lord our God calls people to himself. So it's not man who does the calling. Man doesn't choose. It is God who chooses man. All right, let's talk about some normative practices. Acts 2.42 gives us some normative practices. There are four of them that are listed here. It says that of the early early Ecclesia, which at the point this is written, it was at least 3,000 people, because on the first day, 3,000 were baptized. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So they devoted themselves. They were committed. You see, the group of people that were there on the first day, it said of them in the first few verses of Acts 2 that they were devout. They were very devoted people. So now their devotion turns to Christ. It turns to Jesus as the Lord and Christ. And now they're devoting themselves to practices to support that truth. And only people that have the spirit of God in them are going to do this. You have to be divine powered the power to do this. Number one. You devote yourself to the apostles' teaching. So that's understanding scripture, given the truth that Jesus is Lord in Christ. That's a reality. Now, that unlocks the Old Testament. And I suspect the apostles' doctrine was simply going through the Old Testament and showing how Jesus is Lord in Christ, you know, helps us understand what Old Testament scripture says better. I suspect when uh, Paul did his two-year discipleship initiative in which they uh, they met every day for two years, which that would have been a phenomenal discipleship initiative, I suspect that's exactly what the curriculum was. We're going to go through every book of the Old Testament in light of the truth that Jesus Lord in Christ. And what does that mean? And how does that govern us? At the end of that particular initiative, a fabulous thing is said. It says, now the, all of Asia, Asia was a big area. The people, this discipleship initiative were in one city in Asia, they were in Ephesus. It says, then all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord, um, we kind of hear that very simplistically. If you look up the word logos, which typically that's the word that's used there when you hear it, see, word of the Lord, logos refers to a system of thinking. It refers to a worldview, it refers to a theology, how you think about reality. That's really what he's saying. They all heard a Christian worldview is what they had the whole of Asia. Can you imagine all of wherever you live hearing a Christian worldview? Well, the way that happens is through disciples. We try to make that happen with converts. That doesn't happen well with converts. It happens with disciples. So that's the, that's the imagery we see in Acts 19 that I think helps us understand the power of the apostles' teaching. It will be transformative. It will change you. It will measure you, redefine you, redirect you, give you ability to see reality, understand it. Draw right conclusions and make right choices. That's why you need the apostles' teaching. We all need it. Secondly, interdependent living, which is the fellowship. We almost know nothing about that because we live as atomistic people. We bounce off of each other. We can be in meetings with each other for years, decades. And I, in my own community, I've been around some of these people for 30 years. And the, my testimony about most of them, is they're not different now than they were 30 years ago. Uh, I pray that's not the case with me. It might be, but I pray it's not, because we need to be transformed. And if we're transformed, we will be transformed by living interdependently, helping each other, learn to sacrificially serve the purpose of God and others, that's called love, and helping each other discover the call of God on our lives. You cannot do good works unless they are the works that you're called to do. I think you're all clear that that's what a good work is, the work that that God has called you to. It's not just going to do some service project. That is not necessarily a good work unless God calls you to it. That's where we're missing things today and how we're guiding people. We're not helping them understand how to discern the works that they've been created to do. Remember Ephesians 2.10? Verse 8 says you've been saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself it's a gift of God not of works so that no one can boast for God has created you specifically intentionally sovereignly to serve a work assignment i.e. good works that are part of his meta narrative you've been saved for good works you're not saved by good works but you are saved to perform the works that God has called you to perform, which well, that's what you have seen for to do. Those are good works. I hope you can hear that. This is huge when you can hear it. So interdependent living should be driving us to SLA training. We have almost none of that. SLA in my own community is not really very well embraced. It's not really seen as something very important. That's because we don't know how to live interdependently. We live as atomistic people. They're devoted to meals and sacraments, meals and sacraments are places where we commune together, we share life together, where we are Christ-centered. The Lord's Supper and baptism are our two sacraments, and we, we make sure we practice those to keep ourselves Christocentric. And finally, we are devoted to prayer. Prayers are tools of alignment with God. Tools to help us discern his will and obey. They're tools to help us die to self, to truly serve the purpose of God. If, we don't, if we're don't, we not devoted to praying with brothers and sisters to seek alignment with him, we're probably going to be living more like humanists than we are Christians. So these are things that they did. They're early practices, and I'm, I'm going to suggest that they're norms. These are what every Christian community should be doing. but we don't really have much vision for that uh, because we're too busy trying to save the world, even though God's not trying to do that. Um, but we've created an alternate reality. Uh, we talk about wokeism being an alternate reality. Well, Christians create an alternate reality. It's called world evangelism. And then we appeal to texts like Matthew 28, 18 through 20 to justify it. And Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is a mandate to discipleship of all ethnicities. It isn't a mandate to world evangelism. It says nothing about world evangelism. That's a twisted view of that. So we have to get the scripture clear and we've gotta get walking aligned with what God is doing and how he's choosing to do it. All right, let me just apply this real real quickly. To do this, we've gotta understand the correct worldview. You understand there's basically three worldviews. Uh, fundamentally, all worldviews can fall into one of these three categories. All humanistic worldviews fall into plagiarism. This is all humanist, secularist, Hinduist, Buddhist, you know, Muslims, all of these are plagiarism because ultimately they, they line up with Pelagian thinking, and you can see at the bottom of column, the second column there, the soteriology and Pelagianism is always human works. So, they don't believe in a divine calling, they're not holistic, they, the, in other words, their their practices in life really have very little to do with what they claim to believe, and that varies a little bit. I know that Muslims tend to be more holistic than most, but They're still not really holistic. The anthropology uh, is basically the original sin of Adam. Pelagians deny it. They don't believe in total depravity, which is a consequence of the original sin. They don't believe in the bondage of the will, and they believe in the human potency, that humans can choose to do what they need to do. Now, the the middle column there, the semi-Pelagian column, is where most Christians are today. It's the popular view. It's the view that basically gives humans the choice. We get to choose God. So we don't believe in a divine calling, we believe we call our, uh, excuse me, we don't believe God calls us, we believe we can call ourselves. We are not holistic, we are dualistic typically, that is the semi-Pelagians. They don't believe in original sin or total depravity or bondage of the will, any of those, Uh, although the semi-Pelagians will give some consent that there's something there, but they don't know really quite what. It's just some contamination from original sin. It does not put us in bondage to our will, and we can still have the potency to choose Christ. So you can see that semi-Pelagian view is largely Pelagian, but it's an attempt to reach the far right-hand column, which is the Augustinian view. This is the view of real Christians. Whether they know it or not, this this is the correct view, that God calls, that God calls us to a holistic Christian life, that his call covers everything in our life, that we are born dead in trespasses (coughs) and sins, (coughs) that Adam and Eve sinned as proxies for humanity, which is why we're all totally depraved, because we are their children. And we are in bondage to our will. Our will is in bondage to sin. And we have no potency to self-save. The only way that we can be saved is through divine grace. So Augustinianism is the only correct Christian worldview. So when you bring that over now to the application, we want to look again at, at these practices, starting with the context. The context of life is the kingdom of God. God is after restoring <coughs> the uncontested rule of Christ. That's what he is doing, long-term, big picture. That's what ultimately will happen is Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Jesus is Lord. He's still Lord in the in the interim period, but we have rebellion going on. Rebellion will be repressed. While we are living in this state of rebellion in the world today, We are, as disciples of Jesus, should serve as his empowered agents holistically. That is, everything in our life is to align with his will, his ways, his his timing, and for his glory. That's what a real disciple has to learn to live. You grow into that. You don't instantly do that upon regeneration. But when you are regenerate, you are now not only born again, you're part of the family of God, that's instant, and you're justified, that's instant. There are a lot of things that happen instantly, but all of sanctification now happens progressively until you go into the presence of the Lord. So you mature in terms of your sanctification. Sanctification is the ability to live your position. When you're regenerate, you're positionally in Christ, and more and more you grow in the ability to live as a son or daughter, of the king then we have the four practices we saw in acts 242 the truth of scripture based on acts 236 the apostles doctrine and that should be as we think about how to apply that think about an organization a family your personal life your workplace a society a christian community every context of life we should be thinking from a christian worldview as a holistic foundation for all of life when I go into organizations, many times, even those that are run by professing Christians, they are not basing their organization on a Christian worldview. They're thinking like a humanist. But they go to church, and they tithe, and they give, and they, they serve, and they act like they're Christians in, in part, but they do not bring Christian thinking to their organizational practices. We're called to be Christians 24-7 in every context. The next thing is fellowship. We need to learn how to be interdependent, not only in the Christian community, in our families. We need to be interdependent in our organizations, in our societies. And that's going to be challenging because we have a lot of people in the society that are not safe. You can't just go be interdependent with them. But there are people that are safe, starting with a Christian community. Well, the problem there with our Christian communities is we don't know who's in the community. Uh, I actually had a, conversation this week with a pastor where I was able to point that out to him, is, yeah, you have a lot of people showing up for your Sunday gathering, but you don't really know who's in your community. The only people really in your community are those who have truly been born again and assigned to that community. That's it. Everybody else, you don't know where they are, what's going on with them, but they're not part of the community. So we have to realize that's a big part of our problem, why we can't be interdependent is we're not interdependent where it really counts the most, which is in our Christian communities. So we have to get in that setting where we learn how to live for the good of the whole. It's not about me. It's not about my will. It's not about my agenda. It's not about my glory. It's about him and what he's doing through that community. We need to learn how to break bread, live Christ-centric, build teams around Christ. You will never build healthy teams unless you're building around Christ. All the things that you see out there, all the, the literature about team building, about leadership and all that, that is based on humanistic thinking is only marginally helpful. They're, they may have some good tips. We need to communicate. You know, we need to be equally yoked. Those are good things. You know, we need to be strategic. There are a lot of good things out there, but they are, they're not empowered unless they're Christ-centric. If they're Christ-centric, they're powerful for effecting incredible things that God wants done, and He gets the glory. So we have to learn how to do that in all jurisdictions, including the workplace, and including our Christian communities. And finally, prayer. Prayer is about an act of humility before God. And until we learn to be humble, submitted, and teachable before God, we'll we'll never be effective. We'll never be salt and light. We'll never grow robustly. Our growth will be truncated. It'll be be stunted in some way. And so the challenge is, can we really get clear about how to pray biblically aligned prayers? That's hard. That's very hard because we're used to praying narcissistic prayers. We want to gather and let everybody know what we want God to do. Instead of asking the Lord, Lord, what is your will? Not our will, but your will be done and seeking the Lord and knowing that whatever his will is, it will be good even if we don't like it and we don't want it. So we've got to learn how to pray biblically aligned prayers, starting with the model prayer. And I love the prayers uh, in in Ephesians 3 and the prayers in Colossians 1 and Colossians 4. Uh, Some wonderful prayers, you know, throughout scripture, uh, if we can have the eyes to see. If you pay attention to these prayers and other good prayers in, in Acts 4, pay attention to these prayers. They're very, very Christ-centered. They're very, very, they're not humanistic. They're not making demands to do what they want done. They're asking for, for the grace to serve the purpose of God. So this is a... This is a deeper, more profound look, hopefully, at some of the practices of our early brothers and sisters in Christ, what they modeled for us, and how we should begin to live in the grace of God and the truth of the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer, and let that now permeate everything in our life so we can live aligned with Christ holistically as disciples of Jesus. May we have grace to do that well in Jesus name amen